All right, this is our fourth week reading through the book of Acts. We read chapters 16 to 20 this week, and I've shown you this slide a number of times already in the study, but basically it's demonstrating the the reach or the spread of the gospel as the book of Acts progresses. So in those first five chapters, Uh, The gospel pretty well stayed contained to just Jerusalem, and as the book continues to go on and on, you see its reach uh, expanding to Samaria and Judea, and then that huge green circle that stretches all the way over to Rome is, in theory, where we'll end up as the book of Acts continues to progress. Really, this is following what we've identified as the key verse of the book, Acts 1-8, When Jesus says that um, his disciples are going to bring the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And we saw the gospel begin to really move outside of Jerusalem with the persecution of Saul. As he was hunting Christians down, going house to house, Acts says, breathing threats and murder against Christians, the people had a natural response, much like we would to that kind of persecution. They get out of there. (laughs) And so they spread to Judea and Samaria, and then the unthinkable happens. The greatest enemy of Christianity is converted and becomes its greatest advocate. And the guy who was not chapters earlier persecuting the church of God is now taking the gospel to the region that you can see on your screen there. Uh, In a series of missionary journeys, we know that Paul takes at least three of them. We explored the first missionary journey last week. Here it is for you in detail. I apologize that the text is so small, but you can see Paul's missionary journey. His first one began in Antioch there, he and Barnabas. They left Antioch and went down to Cyprus, and it wasn't up until they got into this green corner up in here, Antioch and Pisidia, that things really started to heat up as far as persecution goes. Uh, Paul was met in the next three cities with some serious opposition, and he, and he leaves each city as the opposition gets worse, but the Jews from those cities follow him. Uh, eventually, you know, he goes from Antioch and Pisidia to Iconium to Lystra, and the Jews are following him, and when they get up to him in Lystra, they actually stone him. And miraculously, the next day, Paul actually gets up and he walks to Derby, this last city right over here. And we made the point last week that if the people in these three cities hate Paul so much that they would stone him, and Paul ends up over here and he's trying to get back to Antioch, why wouldn't he just take the shortest point between two lines, right? If he's trying to get back to Antioch, why doesn't he just go here? But instead, you can see on the map, Paul isn't intimidated by persecution. The very people that had just hunted him down and stoned him, Paul goes back to all of their cities. He goes back to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. And we just can marvel at his boldness and bringing the gospel to places that knowingly hate him and are targeting him. This is Paul's first missionary journey, largely what we read uh, two weeks ago now. You can kind of see how far Paul goes. He just kind of stops in this dark green section. I think that's roughly 400 miles away, his first missionary journey. I'm going to show you his second journey here and just keep an eye on how larger of a region Paul travels to the next time. He goes way over here into modern-day Greece. 
This is roughly a thousand mile missionary journey, so more than double what he had done the first time around. And that's where chapter 16 picks up is Paul at the beginning of his missionary journey. Now we remember at the end of his first journey when he gets back to Antioch, uh, some time passes and he says to Barnabas, hey, let's go back and revisit all of the churches that we had seen on our first journey. And Barnabas says, hey, yeah, great idea. Let's bring John Mark. To which Paul replies, no way. I can't bring that guy with us again. He deserted us the first time around. Why are we going to bring someone who can't even stay with us for a whole missionary journey? And the disagreement between them is so sharp that Paul and Barnabas actually end up splitting ways. Uh, Barnabas takes John Mark and he goes down to Cyprus and Paul does exactly what he had intended to do and he starts going back and visiting the other churches that he had visited the first time around. So you can see some familiar cities on the screen here. Paul on a second jersey journey goes to Derby, goes to Lystra, goes to Iconium. He's doing exactly what he had set out to do. And as he is in those three cities, he encounters someone uh, that becomes pretty well known as the epistles go on, Timothy. Paul meets Timothy in the Derby, Lystra, Iconium era. And maybe upon Paul's first meeting of him, you noticed something that was kind of puzzling that chapter 16 identifies almost right away. As you were reading this week, what seemed a little bit weird to you about what Paul expected of Timothy? Any thoughts on that? It wasn't a question, but there was something kind of weird. Craig. Yeah, he wanted him circumcised. And, and why does that seem weird, Craig? Exactly. Go back to chapter 15. Chapter 15, verse 1. Paul has just gotten back from his first missionary journey, and he encounters some teaching. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. These people are saying that certain salvation is by faith in Christ, but we're going to add something else to this. We're going to say that circumcision is now a requirement for salvation. These people are no different than what modern-day Catholicism is. They're saying Christ is a part of it, yes, but there are also works that we're going to expect of you if you want to come to Christ. And how does Paul respond to this type of teaching? Anyone remember? Is Paul like, okay, yeah, that, that's fine. No, he is adamant. No way. Look at verse 2. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, they are opposed to this idea that circumcision contributes to salvation. We talked about in Galatians last week, uh, chapter 5, Paul is even more adamant than Acts even communicates. He says, if you expect or accept circumcision as part of salvation, you are severed from Christ. If you are going to continue following the law, then do not bring Jesus into this equation. It is one or the other. You cannot have the law and Jesus. Salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone. So when we get to chapter 16 and we read in the first couple of verses that Paul expects Timothy to be circumcised, we may be scratching our heads thinking, what? Did, did you just change your mind in the matter of one chapter? What's going on here? How do we answer this supposed contradiction or Paul seeming to change his mind? Well, I want to ask you a series of questions that I think will help clear this up just a little bit. Do you guys see the tension between these two chapters here? 
Paul's against it in chapter 15. He's asking Timothy to be circumcised in chapter 16. What's going on? Well, first of all, let me ask you this. Who was the audience in chapter 15? Who who was it being asked that they be circumcised? What group of people? In chapter 15, the Greeks, the Gentiles. These Jewish people are saying to Gentiles, you guys need to start following the Jewish law. But in chapter 16, we read that Timothy actually, yes, his father is a Greek, but his mother is a Jew. So Timothy actually Jewish. Circumcision for him would have been a more natural part of culture. In chapter 15, what issue is at stake here? Why are these people saying that the Gentiles need to be circumcised? For what reason? To be saved. To be saved. Yes, in chapter 16, different reason. That's not why Paul has Timothy circumcised. Let's look at 16 verse... I think it's three. Yeah, 16.3. Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him. Why? Because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As best as we can understand what's going on in this passage of Scripture is that Paul anticipates that although Timothy is Jewish and uncircumcised, as he goes and ministers to other Jewish people, this is going to be a severe barrier to any effective ministry that Timothy is going to have. These Jewish people are going to see another Jew who's uncircumcised and say, "Uh, I'm uncomfortable with that. Uh, And and Paul is just thinking that this is going to be way too much of a barrier to try and navigate. And so he says, hey, you know what, Timothy, would you show some deference here and be circumcised for the sake of our ministry together that we can more effectively reach these Jewish people? We might call this today a conscience issue where Christians have to show deference to each other to be effective in ministry. We'll see another one of these next week that is equally fascinating. I want you to keep an eye out for it in our reading, but just keep an eye out as the law, the Old Testament law and Christianity intersect, and and we're just seeing believers in this first century here try and navigate what is a part of salvation, what isn't, what elements of the law do we need to keep, what don't we Here, I think we can pretty clearly say this is a matter of conscience. It's so that Timothy can be effective as he ministers to his own countrymen. All right, so Paul gets Timothy. He joins he and Silas on this missionary journey. We know that this is a start, really, of quite the father-son relationship between Paul and Timothy. As the epistles progress, Timothy gets two epistles addressed to him. I think at least four times, uh, Paul calls Timothy his son. A couple of times, he calls him his beloved son. This is quite a partnership uh, in gospel ministry here that kind of begins in these cities and Paul's second missionary journey. As they're going along, you see they're, they're in that dark green section there. And the most natural place to bring the gospel would seem to be Maybe Asia, that red section right next to it. Maybe Bithynia, that section up at the top that's light green there. And yet Paul, Silas, and Timothy are actually told not to go, those, to, go to those regions. First question from our reading, who keeps Paul from preaching the gospel in Asia and Bithynia? Yeah, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is so active here in the book of Acts. 
Uh, in chapter 2, he equips people to speak in tongues. Uh, he picks Saul and Barnabas to go on the first missionary journey. He equips the disciples with boldness. Here in Acts 16, he keeps Paul from preaching the gospel in what might be like the most obvious places to bring it. He says, no, don't go to Asia, don't go to Bithynia. He says, I want you to go all the way to Macedonia. And while he is there in modern-day Greece, kind of that orange section in the top left-hand corner, he comes to Philippi. And there he speaks to a group of women outside the city. Lydia is one of them, and she receives Christ, her and her whole household. But who is it that the text says opens Lydia's heart to respond to the gospel? The Lord. Yeah, the text says that as she is sitting there listening to the preaching of God's word, the Lord opens her heart to respond to the gospel. And so maybe a corollary question to that, what was Paul's responsibility throughout this whole process up to this point on his second missionary journey? What was he responsible for? Just preaching, right? The Holy Spirit said, hey, don't go here. The Lord opens Lydia's heart. All Paul has to do is be God's mouthpiece, be obedient and speak. And so the last question then to apply it to our lives today, how can this text shape our perspective of evangelism? What do we learn from this? Okay, certainly the Lord might be turning people's hearts. Yeah, what else? Yeah, John. I just got to be ready to tell people the truth. Totally. Isn't it freeing to know that the responsibility of converting someone isn't my job? That it's God who draws people? that it's the spirit who's at work, and I'm just the mouthpiece? How awesome is that? It takes all of the responsibility off of my shoulders to try and go toe-to-toe with an atheist and debate them and convince them that, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. You need to believe in him. It's not really my job. The Lord does this. Yeah. I did want to make one final point here before we move on to the second question. It might seem a little bit odd to us that the Holy Spirit would tell Paul not to preach the gospel in this pink section here. Like, yep, just keep going. Don't bring the gospel there. But notice that on Paul's return trip, he does stop in Asia. If you notice, all of the cities right here that have a yellow dot next to them, I don't know if you can read them, but those are the churches that John addresses Revelation to. Those are the churches that Jesus personally gives an exhortation to and says, hey, I want you guys to live this way. Good job in these areas. Here's the area that you need to work on. And so we know that the Holy Spirit is not giving like a eternal, like Asia can never receive the gospel command here. Certainly not. They're allowed to return there on the way back. The gospel does spread there eventually. But more importantly, the Holy Spirit is just saying, I need you guys to get to Macedonia and to bring the gospel to them. In Acts 16, second part of the question here, uh, Paul and Silas are imprisoned in Philippi, the same city where Lydia is converted. They're beaten, they're imprisoned, uh, they're spending the night in jail, and what are they doing while they are in prison? How do they respond uh, during this time? Lynn? Praying and singing. Yeah, isn't that crazy? How many of you would be in prison just singing with him? praying, you know, you're still bruised and bleeding from being beaten just hours earlier. 
And yet here these guys are being beaten and imprisoned. We know the story goes on. There's a great earthquake. Uh, their chains fall off. The doors open. Uh, great opportunity for them to just walk right out of there, but they don't. And the jailer's about ready to take his own life. And Paul says, hey, we're all here. Calm down. And you can't imagine, or you can't help but think, rather, that their testimony in these hours leading up to uh, the earthquake is really what prompted the jailer to ask that famous question, what must I do to be saved? These guys praying and singing in prison, like Lydia, the jailer's whole household is saved and baptized. And then again, another applicational question, how should we think about and respond to unpleasant circumstances in our life? From this text, what example or model do we have? How, how can we respond to things that aren't all that fun? Yeah, praise God. Claire? Mm, interesting, yes, right? Hindsight being 2020, what happens because Paul and Silas go to jail? The jailer's converted, he and his whole family. I remember um, a couple of years ago, I was on my way to church and my car broke down like a mile from church. And immediately I was just grouchy. I was like, oh, are you kidding me? Like, I'm just trying to get to church, God. Don't, you know, like, what, why is this happening to me? And the friend that I was with just encouraged me immediately. Like, God knows. He allowed this to happen. We don't need to get stressed or panicked about this. So when, when we have unpleasant circumstances in our life, can't we rest in God's sovereignty and know that there is an all-powerful God who allowed these things to happen to us, who might be working in ways that we don't understand, who, who even sometimes lets his children be beaten and imprisoned so that people might come to Christ? Certainly an example for us here in Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas leave Philippi, and they come to Thessalonica, Again, you can see they're still in this orange section over here. Here's Philippi. Here's Thessalonica. And while they are there, uh, there's quite the disparity between Jewish and Gentile conversions. There are a few Jews who get saved, but largely a lot of Gentiles. And the Jews get jealous at this, that the Gentiles are responding so well to the gospel. And they form a mob. They try and hunt Paul and Silas down. And as they're like just you know, trying to figure out where they are, they grab, I think, Jason and someone else, and they bring him before, like, a council, and they say about Paul and Silas uh, these famous words, what reputation do Paul and Silas have at this point? What do they say about them in verses 6 and 7? Hutch. Yeah, these men have turned the world upside down. How awesome is that for a descriptor of Christianity? Isn't that what the gospel does? When people have their hearts of stone turned to hearts of flesh and they're new creatures, they're living different lives, wouldn't a, uh, the gospel just kind of snowball effect through Greece here look a lot like the world being turned upside down? Pretty awesome. Well, Paul and Silas flee Thessalonica because of all of the opposition that they face there, and they go on to Berea a neighboring city also there in Greece. And the text says that the Jews in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why was that? Jeff. They were receiving the word. 
Yes. They received the word with eagerness. They examined the scriptures daily to see if what they were being taught was true. Remember we talked last week, I believe, about Paul's method of sharing the gospel with Jewish people? He just doesn't waltz into a synagogue and say, hey guys, uh, there's a new guy, Jesus, that you need to believe in and you know, you can be forgiven and your sins will be yeah, washed away. If Paul tried that in a Jewish synagogue, they're going to run him out of there. It'll seem like he's introducing a new religion. So instead, when Paul goes to a Jewish synagogue, he begins in the Old Testament, and he begins showing them how all of the Old Testament is anticipating this Jesus. He is the promised Messiah that you guys all believe in, that you've been expectantly awaiting for. And so when he goes to Berea and says these things, the Jews in Berea don't just take Paul's word for it. They go to the scriptures themselves, and they say, you're talking about Jesus being resurrected from the dead? You're talking about Jesus, his hands and his feet being pierced, and they go back to Psalm 22, and they look at it. They go back to Psalm 2, maybe to Isaiah 53, these rich Old Testament scriptures that anticipate Jesus, and they say, there's some merit to what Paul is saying, so much so that verse 12 of chapter 17 says this, many of them therefore believed. A lot of Jews are believing because they are going to the scriptures themselves and seeing if what Paul is saying is true. So third question, how can this mindset be an example to us today? What are the Jews in Berea teaching us that can serve as an example to us? Copy. Yeah, and read it for yourself. Just because I'm up here, telling you what I spent all week studying, don't take my word for it. Don't, don't just let me be the one who once a week gives you a little spoon of the Bible and says, here you go, eat it. Go to the scriptures yourself and discern whether or not what I'm telling you is true. If you hear something a little bit off, if you hear something, they're like, mm, I don't know that I believe that. Go to the scriptures. Totally. Any other thoughts from the example here? John? Because we need to be ready to give an answer to every person using the hope that we have. Yeah. And, and being familiar and knowledgeable of the scriptures is going to allow us to do that. Uh, here's another observation that I had from this text The Jews in Berea viewed the scriptures as their ultimate authority. When they're hearing these things about Jesus from the Apostle Paul, they don't go and ask their rabbi. Hey, are these things true? They don't go and ask their neighbor. They don't go to other contemporary works of literature and see mm, if that had any merit. They go to the scriptures. That is their ultimate authority. So too should we, when we hear something, not run onto the, you know, Google and say, yeah, is this true? We shouldn't even look to popular pastors today, to ministries, to let these people inform us what the truth is. Right? We were talking about Romans 1 just a couple of weeks ago and how the idea that homosexuality is being taught in some pulpits that this is okay, that God accepts this. If we take the word of some popular pastors, we're going to be ensnared and fall into a trap. We cannot let the culture tell us if the Bible is true or not or that certain things should be accepted or not. Even people in ministry leadership, the scriptures have to be our ultimate authority here. So turn to them, look at them daily, as Cuppy was saying. This has to be uh, the foundation or the basis upon which we build our lives. 
Uh, as Acts 17 progresses, Paul moves from Berea onto Athens in Greece, and he encounters a really unique opportunity to share the gospel. How would you describe what Paul does in Acts 17 to share the gospel? What creative method does he employ here? Okay. Can you elaborate just on that a little bit more, Dave? Do you remember? Okay. I don't think that's... Jeff? Exactly. Yeah. As Paul is walking around this city that is full of idols, he happens to notice that there's an idol to the unknown God, as Jeff just pointed out. And he says, hey, let me reveal to you this God that you think is unknown. And he begins to talk about the true and living God. And then there is a series of descriptions that Paul has in verses 24, 25, and 29 that kind of contradict a pagan view of false gods. Does anyone want to summarize those really quick? We'll just move quickly through this question, but how does Paul contradict a pagan view of false gods? Hutch. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Paul says something to the effect of uh, the true and living God cannot be confined to a temple. He, he's not a God that is made with human hands. Uh, since he is our father and we are his offsprings, it is foolish to think that as offspring of God, we could somehow encapsulate what God might look like into an image of gold or silver. He, he's so much greater than us. Paul is just contradicting all of the idolatry that he sees in Athens as he is talking about the true and living God. And again, there is another point from Acts 17 here for us to consider. Paul knows his audience when he introduces the gospel. Right? We just talked about how when he's talking to Jews, he begins in the Old Testament, and he kind of reasons them through the scriptures and says, Jesus is the fulfillment of everything. But when he's talking to Greeks, when he's talking to learned, philosophical people, uh, Acts 17 says that these Greek people just sat around all day discussing new things. They were the, philosoph the philosophers of the world. Paul goes to them, and he quotes their poets. He uses logic and reasons with these people to share Christ with them. And again, there is a, um, a bit of a model for us. Know your audience when you're talking about Jesus. We said last week, if you're talking to someone who's been unchurched before, using words like propitiation, justification, sanctification, right over their head. They don't know what that means. So when you're talking to Jesus about people who've never heard anything related to church before, Explain it in simple terms. Don't change the message, certainly not, but be creative in how you share it. Know it, who it is that you're talking to. Quickly, as we move to Acts 18, Paul has moved yet again, this time to Corinth. So he's still in modern-day Greece. He went from Berea all the way down here into Corinth. And while he's there, there's this model that you've come to expect. He goes to the Jews first. They reject him. The Gentiles seem to be more receptive to the gospel than the Jews. And let me ask you, when we see this play out in chapters prior to this, 
what usually ends up happening as a consequence of more Gentiles responding to the gospel than the Jewish people? What, what sort of thing begins to happen? Uh, I think I heard it. The Jews get jealous, and they start stirring up riots in a crowd, and that seems to be what might be happening here in Corinth. And you can almost anticipate in your mind's eye, like Paul going, again? Maybe he's already picked out the next destination on the map that he's going to go to. Maybe he's kind of bracing himself for persecution, for some of the discomfort that always comes when the Gentiles respond better to the gospel than the Jewish people, except in verses 9 and 10, Jesus appears to Paul. And he encourages him. What are some of the things that Jesus says to Paul in verses 9 and 10 as he's in Corinth? Yeah, Cynthia. Yes, you summarize very well the main points that Jesus actually makes. He says, I'm with you. No one is going to harm you or attack you. And I have a lot of people in the city that are mine. Now, how do you think Jesus himself coming to you and saying that to Paul, how do you think that changed his ministry? How do you think that encouraged Paul to continue boldly preaching the gospel? What are some thoughts you have? How would you respond if Jesus came and told you this? Pretty awesome, huh? Paul must have felt invincible. Jesus is with me? No harm is going to happen to me? I'm so used to being persecuted. I've been stoned before. But Jesus is with me. And maybe most interestingly, Jesus says, I have many in this city who are mine. What Jesus is saying here is that there are people in Corinth who aren't even converted yet. But they are elect. And he's in essence saying to Paul, go find them. Preach the gospel. I'm guaranteeing you success. How awesome is that? This is the Jesus we serve today. We're going to see as Acts progresses, Jesus actually comes to Paul a handful of times to encourage him personally. We don't see this a whole lot in the scriptures. The resurrected Jesus who is ascended next to the Father comes to Paul and encourages him personally. This is our Savior. This is who we love. This is what he's like. How awesome is that? Jesus is pretty awesome in Acts 18. As Paul continues his missionary journey, there's not a whole lot that's said about this last section here. He kind of moves on from Corinth, stops in Ephesus. I think he's there for maybe three years, and then he comes on down and just kind of circles around to Antioch. There's not a whole lot of details about that last third of his missionary journey, but we do get one final glimpse into what happens in Ephesus after he leaves. Paul leaves behind Aquila and Priscilla there, and they interact with this guy, Apollos. How would you describe, from verses 24 to 26, what Aquila and Priscilla did for Apollos? How would you describe their ministry to him? Lynn? Exactly. Yes, Apollos is described as being very competent with the scriptures. He's very eloquent. I mean, like, the guy that you want to be preaching the word, right? Competent, eloquent. And yet there's something a little bit off about his doctrine. 
Uh, Acts 18 tells us that he is believing in the baptism of John. That's what he's teaching. Actually, when you turn to Acts 19, there's 12 more guys who are following the baptism of John, and we don't entirely know what that was, except that in some way it was inadequate. It was insufficient. It wasn't the full gospel. And so Aquila and Priscilla pull Apollos aside, and like Lynn said, they show him the true way, the full gospel from the scriptures. And what was the outcome of their labors according to verse 28? What fruit did they see almost immediately from this? Claire. Yeah. After they clarify for him the gospel, Apollos gets sent to another city. He is an encouragement to the believers there, and he refutes the Jews publicly, showing them from the scriptures that Jesus is their Messiah. So then an applicational question from our reading, how might we model a similar ministry today? Lisa. Yeah. There's no better word for it than discipleship. Can you imagine if we all did this at Grace? Where we found someone who maybe was a newer believer, maybe a little bit younger than us, maybe you can see in them a lot of potential. There are some unrefined gifts that God has given them. And you commit to discipling that person. And yeah, you roll with the punches sometimes because newer believers aren't always just easy to work with. And there are going to be some rough spots and there are going to be times that you're frustrated and you wish they were growing faster. But can you imagine if like Aquila and Priscilla did for Apollos, you were faithful in discipling someone and helping them develop their God-given gifts so that one day they went to another church, they stayed here at Grace, and they poured out of themselves what they had learned from you and they replicate themselves? How cool would that be? Right, as I thought about this passage more, I thought of Titus 2 and the responsibility that older men have to teach the younger men, that older women have to teach the younger women. And I'm reminded that what Acts 18 is describing here is not a suggestion. This isn't do this if you have some extra free time. This isn't do this if you, you know, consider yourself to be ready to disciple someone else. No, this is a requirement for Christians that we replicate ourselves, that we pour ourselves into other people. This is what Paul is doing for Timothy. He's shepherding him. He's developing him. He is helping him to grow in Christ and to use his gifts to one day bless the church. An awesome model here for us in Acts 18. When we come to Acts 19, Paul finishes his second missionary journey. Here it is for you. The third one looks very similar, a lot of the same destinations. Here it is on the screen. Again, he goes about as far as Berea, uh, but he doesn't come down this way on his third journey. He just kind of stays along the coast of Asia here. And the first destination that he goes to on this third missionary journey really is Ephesus. He kind of skips a lot of the cities through this area, and he stops here in Ephesus, and this is like a high point of Paul's ministry. People are getting healed. People are receiving the gospel. It is unbelievable, but as with any, um, well, we have a question before that. 
So while he's still in Ephesus, I said this is a high point of his ministry, people are getting saved, like, all the time, the text makes it sound like, and they're repenting. And according to verses 18 and 20, what would you say is evidence of true repentance, the repentance we see in Ephesus? How do you know these people are serious and that they mean business? Titus. Yeah. Uh, the, all of the things that tied them to their idolatry, uh, their magic books, if he, or uh, Acts calls them, they burn them. 50,000 pieces of silver worth of money. I, I, I did like a quick like search and, and discovered that this was like millions of dollars worth of artifacts that these people burn in, in repentance and demonstrating that the faith that has taken hold in their life is genuine. And again, we have to be reminded that this can be a litmus test for our own repentance. When we repent of sins, is it a full 180? A full, I don't care what this costs me, I'm living for Christ. Or do we ask for forgiveness and still kind of flirt with the same sins that we previously had repented of? I think the people in Ephesus give us a great model for what genuine repentance looks like. Second question from Acts 19, as the gospel has really taken hold in Ephesus here, uh, this guy Demetrius gets pretty upset at the movement that seems to be blossoming in his own uh, city, and it kind of revolves around what Paul had been teaching about idolatry. What were the exact words that Paul uses to describe the idolatry that is in Ephesus? What does he say? Tell me. Yeah, it kind of mirrors what he had said back in Athens. Gods made with human hands are not gods at all. That had to be pretty uh, abrasive to the people who have all these statues of Artemis in their house. And for what reason does Demetrius seem to be so opposed to Paul? Why is he so angry? Lynn? Yes. He stood to lose his living. Right? He just saw everyone in Ephesus burn millions of dollars worth of magic books and he's looking at his own wallet, and he's like, yikes, I'm next. If this is really what the gospel does, if people really return, repent of their sins like this, my industry is gone. It kind of betrays the fact that Demetrius' real God wasn't Artemis, was it? It was his wallet. And he starts a riot. For two hours, these people gather in a theater in Ephesus. I actually have a picture of it for you here. See this theater? For two hours, this theater holds 24,000 people. People are chanting over and over and over again, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This is the response that Demetrius is able to work up in opposition to Paul and his message. And we're just reminded that, yeah, sometimes we encounter people who are blind to the gospel today who are dead in their sins and trespasses, but certainly the Apostle Paul experienced the same opposition to the gospel. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people chanting over and over and over again, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. And according to 2 Peter 2 verse 3, what is one of the driving motivations behind false teaching? If you looked at that text, it identified something that motivates false teachers. What is it, Jeff? Greed. Yeah, they're in it for themselves. And unfortunately, this is not just something that was true in Paul's day in Ephesus. We know there are false teachers who are teaching for greed today. 
right? Perhaps the most egregious example of this would be the TV preachers that you see online saying, hey, sow a seed of $1,000 and you send it to me and God will bless you. Can that not be a good litmus test for us to just discern if their teachings are false? As I thought about this, maybe a little bit more applicationally, I wondered if it's possible that we are guilty of a similar sin that Demetrius had in how we view the church. Certainly, there's not a whole lot of wealth to be gained here, so we're not looking to pad our wallets here at Grace, but I wonder if some of us have begun to idolize positions or a reputation or status or something that can be gained by being a part of a church. And when that feels threatened, like Demetrius, when you see your livelihood going away and maybe you are in a church and you feel like, oh, I might lose what is so near and dear to me, do you respond in a similar way as he did and you get defensive? You find other people to support you and you know, help you like, to protect what is yours. I don't know. I think that this mindset can creep its way into the church and I think we should be mindful of that as well. Quickly, we have one minute from Acts chapter 20 to answer the last question here. Um... Paul meets up with the elders in Ephesus on his way back on his third missionary journey there. He doesn't even go to Ephesus. He just says, hey, guys, meet me at the coast. And there, Paul just does like a quick recap of his ministry. And what were some of the things that stood out to you about Paul's description of his ministry in Ephesus? He lists a bunch of things. A lot of them are very devotional. What does Paul say about the way that he ministered in Ephesus. He was there for three years. He loved these people dearly. As he's saying goodbye, they're crying and embracing and kissing one another. Paul says, I'm never going to see you again. It's a really sad time for this church. What stands out to you about Paul's description of his ministry? Claire. Serving with all humility. Okay. Serving with all humility. Paul says, this is how I've served you. Any other thoughts, Lisa? Yes. Twice, he says, I did not shrink from giving you the whole counsel of God. He gave them the scripture straight up. Unlike Demetrius, who was in religion for his wallet, Paul says, I worked with my own hands. And, and what I worked, I gave to the poor. I'm not here to get rich off of you guys in Ephesus. I am working with my own hands so that I can give to people who are poor. Please let me encourage you to go back and read chapter 20 and model that in your own life. But we are out of time, so let's pray. Father, we have a lot to learn uh, from Acts. As we just stop and reflect, though, on Paul's uh, synopsis of his own ministry, Lord, would you help us to have a similar attitude that, towards money that Paul had, that it was just a vehicle to use to give to people who are more in need? Or would you help us, like Paul, to say that we did not shrink from teaching even the things that were hard in ministry? Um... There's a lot for us to glean here, a lot that we can learn from the Berean church as well and being faithful students of your word and viewing scriptures as our authority. I pray that you would continue even this morning as we uh, are just in your word again to be working out the truths of a, in our own lives and to be further convinced that what we believe is true. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.